0: Hey, I'm Zach, I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to this week's message. I hope that it encourages you, I hope that it inspires you, and I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I Also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with and have spiritual conversations with. And if you don't, we would really love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore. You can get all the information that you need on our website at restoreaustin.org. Thank you for listening. The grace of God is on the loose. Contrary to our expectations, counter to our assumptions, frustrating our judicial sentiments and mocking our craving for control, the grace of God is turning the world upside down. God is shamelessly pouring out his lavish favor on undeserving people of all stripes. That quote is from a book by David Mathis called Habits of Grace, and it's the inspiration behind the summer series that we are starting today. You see, our Habits of Grace series, it's going to include habits like studying the Bible, which is what we'll be talking about this morning, praying, giving, fasting, serving, and spending time together in community. Now, this series is going to take us through the end of the summer, and during it, you'll get to hear um, not only from me, but from our very own Matt Gonzalez and from our very own Mark Jordan. And so I'm so excited. Yeah, give it up. It's exciting. But you don't have to give it up. Woo is enough. That's probably <laughs> But I'm going to really encourage you to take notes this morning and throughout this entire series, the verses and concepts, they're going to be on the screen behind us, but we're going to be rolling through a lot. And I really think that you're going to want to go back and look through some of the things that we talk about. So you can take notes like on the back of your handout that's in your seats, on your phone, iPad, um, or if you have just a plain old notebook, if you're that kind of a person, that's totally cool too. Now, you may be wondering why we're calling this series Habits of Grace. Instead of something that has uh, like spiritual disciplines in the title. The habits I just mentioned have been traditionally referred to as spiritual disciplines. But I think I think that terminology, it carries a little bit of baggage. I grew up in a religious community that believed spiritual disciplines were a means of earning God's approval. To put it simply, I was taught that if I, I read the Bible or the words that they would use, I'd have a daily quiet time if I prayed, if I generously gave money, if I volunteered, etc., that God would be happy with me. And if I didn't do those things, or I didn't do them frequently enough, or I did them in a way that my church did not approve of, then God was upset with me. To be honest, I've, I've never really been very good at following the rules. There were times in my young life where I like, I really tried to practice these spiritual disciplines correctly. I mean, I worked really hard at it, but I would inevitably just fall short. I began to believe that God was just perpetually angry with me because I never measured up. Some of you may have experienced that same thing. And if you're like me, that drove you away from the spiritual disciplines away from the church and maybe even away from God himself. You know, for me, I figured that if God was going to be mad at me anyway, I might as well just do whatever I want to. But when Jesus found me later in life, I was reintroduced to these spiritual disciplines. And again, I struggled with these feelings of inadequacy around them. I never felt like I was doing them enough. I never felt like I was doing them the right way. Even on great days, I would have like this, this amazing, like hour long quiet time. You know, I'd wake up really early in the morning, I'd open my Bible, I'd dive into it, and at the end, like, I'd finish the quiet time, I'd go out, and I'd still have kind of a rough day. And, and, and I just was thinking, like, why am I doing it? It's not working. I'm putting in the work, I'm doing the right things, but I still feel like my life's not going the way I want to, and it still feels like when I mess up or I fall short or I don't do it the right way, God's mad at me. But thankfully, I had a pastor during this time that taught me the problem was not the disciplines themselves. It was the way that I saw them, the way that I understood them. You see, I thought spiritual disciplines were the way to get God's approval and the way to win God's favor, to kind of have a a better life. But I came to understand that I already had God's approval and I already had God's favor. I was his son in whom he was well-pleased He loved me because I was his child, not because I performed for him. This is called grace. And grace is a foundational understanding in Christianity. Grace is unmerited favor from God. Grace is a love that you can't earn, and it's a gift that you can't pay back. As the famous song so appropriately said, grace is truly amazing. Not only is this foundational in our faith, I want to point out to us that the whole of the Christian life is actually done by grace. Let me show you what I mean. We are saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Not only that, we overcome sin by grace. Romans 6, 14, for sin will have no dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Our strength comes by grace. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Even in our weakness, we live by grace. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Complete restoration comes by Grace and the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. And here's the very best one, my my favorite one God's grace is available to us all. Because hear me, God's grace is more than a concept, God's grace is a person. Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The grace of God appeared in the flesh when Jesus arrived. He is grace incarnate. Grace come to live and dwell with us. I love the way that John says it in his account of Jesus's life. He says the word, that's a nickname for Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Grace is more than a concept. It's more than a a theological assertion. You see, grace is a person. His name is Jesus. And from the person of Jesus, we have received grace upon grace. You see, we got grace from God just by being created in his image. By, by being put on this earth, the things that we experience, the good parts of life. Scripture says that all good things come from our Father in heaven. That's grace, but we got grace upon grace when the person of Jesus came down and dwelt among us. Grace upon grace. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you have become indwelt by this grace, that this person, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, has come to live in you. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You see, this grace has moved from living among us to living within us. It's better. Through the Holy Spirit, we have access to God's grace every moment of every day. And it's not just for the purpose of of getting to go to heaven someday. No, it's for the purpose of experience a fullness of life right now. The abundant life. Jesus said, I came to bring life and life to the full. And he didn't just give it to us out here. He put it inside of us. But if that's all true, why don't we experience God's grace more often than we do? If it's not just among us, but inside of us, if we have grace upon grace, why don't most of us experience it as much as we'd like to? I can only speak for me, but I'm sure that it's true for many of us. There are plenty of days where I feel like I'm not experiencing Jesus the way that I'd like to. Plenty of days where I don't trust him with my decisions Plenty of days where I don't spend much time talking to him, and where I don't really feel his presence with me. You know what I'm talking about? Like I feel, I know cognitively that he's here, but I don't feel him. Maybe I'm the only one. But I wonder why that is. I think it's because we get in our own way. You see, Jesus hasn't moved. He's a constant. He's with us all the time. So if we're not experiencing God's grace as much as we'd like, it's because we've moved. We've focused our minds on our possessions. We've found our identity in our work. We've fixed our eyes on other relationships. We've trusted ourselves more than we've trusted God. We've moved. We've moved. But God... In his infinite mercy has given us ways to move back. To reorient ourselves around the grace of God that is already within us. That we have access to moment after moment, day after day. He's given us these ways to move back. Some people call these ways spiritual disciplines. We're going to call them habits of grace. Habits, because we believe in being intentional about prioritizing these things, making them a part of our, our daily week, our rhythms, our daily and weekly rhythms. That's the habits part, the grace part, because they are all pointed toward the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Habits of grace. These habits don't earn God's grace. Listen, they position us to experience it more frequently and more intimately. These habits don't earn God's grace. They position us to experience it more frequently and more intimately. Think about it like this. I can flip a light switch on, but I don't manufacture the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I can't make the water flow. We can't control God's grace. We can't earn God's grace, but he has given us postures that position us to experience it more frequently and more intimately. And we're calling these things habits of grace. These habits don't move Jesus toward us. They move us toward him. They refocus our minds and our hearts on trusting him. God's grace personified Jesus Christ. As we navigate through our lives. So that's what this series is. That's what we're gonna be talking about over the next six weeks. I'm really, really excited to dive into it with you. This morning, we tackle our first habit studying the Bible. Now, there are lots of ways to study the Bible. You can do so kind of through personal reading. You can open your Bible, you can look in that, you can read books, you can read devotionals, you can listen to sermons. You can have group discussions. You can do memorization or meditation or podcasts or take classes. There are tons of ways. And we could spend time talking about all these various ways or the best practices for choosing these resources. We could do that, and that's really important. In fact, as a part of this series, we've set up restoreaustin.org slash habits with resources for each of these habits of grace. So if you go on there later today, I would encourage you to do that. It'll say studying the Bible, and it'll have resources that we recommend for ways to do that. It's important. It matters. But that's not what we're going to do this morning. This morning is going to be a little bit different. And I want to pray for us, and I want to dive into it, okay? Ah, God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the beautiful children that are in this room and those that are watching right now. Thank you for the ways you love us. Thank you that you don't move. God, but I pray for those of us that have moved, myself included, that you will use some of these habits to reorient us around you, around your son, Jesus, and around the grace that you so lavishly provide. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I did some research this week on what people think about the Bible, and how often they interact with it. But rather than just reading it to you or going over it with you, I thought we'd do some live polling this morning. That sound good? All right, nothing fancy, just hand-raising. So Christian or not, church person or not, I'd love for everyone to participate, okay? you ready? Give me a nod. Ready? Okay. Number one, raise your hand if you think the Bible is important. Okay, pretty good. Raise your hand if you think the Bible is helpful. All right? Number three, raise your hand if you think we should interact with the Bible in some way, shape, or form. Good. Last one. Raise your hand if you think you should interact with the Bible more than you currently do. I raised the first three too, but the last one (laughs) as well. The vast majority of us, the vast majority of us think that we should be interacting with the Bible more often than we are currently. In fact, I, I put this question, uh, this last question on Twitter and Instagram this week in a poll, and I found the same thing. Like 94% of people said that they thought they should be acting with the, interacting with the Bible more often than they currently are. So if the Bible's important, if it's helpful if we should be interacting with it in some way, if we should be reading it, if we should be studying it, then why are the vast majority of us not interacting with it as much as we'd like to be? Not even as much as we should be or as much as someone else tells us to be, but self-reported as much as we'd like to be. The vast majority of us are not interacting with it as much as we'd like to be. Why? I think I am convinced It's because we often misunderstand the purpose of the Bible. Or to put it another way, we read it for the wrong reasons. Now, we could do an entire message series on the Bible, going through it, talking about it. We probably will someday. But this morning, we're really after just the basics, understanding the purpose of the Bible and understanding how that purpose changes the way that we read it and we study it. So here's the question I want to answer during this message. Why do we need the Bible? Why do we need the Bible? If you Google it, here are some popular opinions that come up in Christian articles and blogs and things like that. Number one, we need the Bible to understand history. We need the Bible to learn how to be a better person or a better Christian. We need the Bible to learn more about God. We need the Bible to help us make better decisions, to find life's answers to life's questions. We need the Bible to help us stop doing bad things. None of these answers are really wrong. I think they just fall woefully short. The Bible is so much more than an historical account. It's so much more than a transference of knowledge from itself to us. It's so much more than a self-help book. The central and ultimate answer to the question, why do we need the Bible is this, to help us know and trust Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the why. We need the Bible to help us know and trust Jesus. It's the same reason we practice any habit of grace, knowing Jesus with our very selves and trusting him with our whole lives, knowing and trusting Jesus. Knowing is the inward part. Trusting is the outward part. Jesus works in us so that he can work through us from the inside out, knowing and trusting Jesus. Now, let's start with the knowing Jesus part. The idea that knowing Jesus is of ultimate importance has always been a central tenet to Christianity from the very beginning. In his letter to the early church, the apostle Paul puts it like this, Philippians 3, but whatever we whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. It's of ultimate importance. But it wasn't just Paul who felt this way. On the night that Jesus was arrested, we find him praying in the garden of Gethsemane. You may remember the story. It's right after the last supper with his disciples and they go out into the garden. And you may remember that the disciples are supposed to be praying with Jesus, but they keep falling asleep. So Jesus is there and he's praying in the quietness of the garden with everyone else asleep. Jesus begins his most famous prayer this way. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. Listen, Jesus is about to define eternal life for us. This is eternal life that they know you, the one only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's life. That's eternal life as defined by Jesus, knowing the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. That, Jesus says, is where eternal life is found. We need the Bible. Not because studying it makes us a better person, but because it introduces us to the one who makes us a new person. Jesus put it, Pretty bluntly, when talking to the religious leaders in John chapter 5, he said, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, in them, you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Why do we need the Bible? Not for the purpose of the scriptures themselves, but because the scriptures tell us about Jesus. The Bible doesn't give us life. It helps us know the one who does. The Bible does not give us life. It helps us know the one who does. So many of us aren't interacting with the Bible as much as we'd like to because we've been asking it to do something that it just can't do. Like the Pharisees We are searching the Bible for life, but it's just not there. Life is in Jesus only. The Bible doesn't give us life. It helps us know the one who does. So that's what it looks like to know Jesus through scripture. That's the the first part. Now to the second part. How do we use the Bible to help us trust him? Galatians 2.20, Paul says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Listen, think about it like this. If knowing Jesus is him working in us, then trusting Jesus is him working through us. Did you catch that? Knowing Jesus is him working in us, us coming to know him, him, him changing our lives, trusting him, is going out every moment of every day and letting him work through us. And this is where the Bible becomes so vital because the Bible teaches us how this should work. Scripture paints the picture of what Jesus working through us should look like. Because if our lives are being completely led by Jesus, listen, our lives will look like Jesus's life, right? Stands to reason. If Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, is leading us, if we are trusting him, if we are making the decisions he leads us to, if we are caring for the people that he cares, He leads us to care for, then our lives will look like Jesus's life when he was here on earth. We will interact with the world the same way he did. How many of you have ever heard the term biblical worldview? Would you raise your hand up? Biblical worldview. You ever heard that term? Many of you who just raised your hand got a little uncomfortable when I used that term. Because like many other Christian phrases, biblical worldview has been hijacked a lot of times. It's been misappropriated to mean holding whatever moral or theological perspective the speaker of it wants you to hold. Right, This happens all the time. We see it happening everywhere. The politician who claims a biblical worldview should result in votes for her or for him. The author who describes a biblical worldview as holding to their specific and often very narrow theological perspective. The pastor who says a biblical worldview means that you should just listen to him all the time, what he says, that all churches should look like their church. This term has become so polarizing, so really devoid of any type of baseline of understanding that a lot of people, honestly, myself included, have just kind of let it go. I'm just not going to use the term biblical worldview anymore. It's, it's come to mean too many things that I don't want to be associated with. I've done this, honestly, like for the last five years. I've just completely stopped using that term. But this morning, I want to take it back. <laughs> I, want to, I want to redeem it, okay? I want to use it in the proper way, okay? So listen, a biblical worldview is seeing and serving the world the way Jesus did. A biblical worldview is seeing and serving the world the way that Jesus did. Again, we can do this. We have the ability to do this, not because we're great, not because Jesus is this awesome example and we can follow everything that he does. No, because we are indwelt by his spirit, because he lives within us. I have died. I no longer live. But what? Christ lives in me. We have the ability to see and serve the world the way Christ did because he lives within us. As we know him, he works in us. And as we trust him, he works through us. If Jesus is working through us, we will see and serve the world the same way he did. And the Bible paints the picture of what that should look like. It gives us story after story of Jesus's life. So we know what it should look like if we're trusting him with our lives. Doesn't this make you more excited to read scripture? Doesn't this make you want to see it in a different way? Let me give you an example of how this works, okay? There's a familiar story from the life of Jesus found in John chapter 4. Jesus is traveling from Judea to Galilee. It's a pretty long journey, and it forces him to go through Samaria. Now, Samaria is a place that the Samaritans and Jewish people, they did not get along very well. Samaria was also kind of an unsafe place for a Jewish person. But Jesus, being Jesus... Wants to go through there. Not only that, he wants to actually stop there for a little while. Here's the story. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. They're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up with eternal life. Now let's pause here for a second. He says, the water that I give them will be eternal life. We already know what eternal life is, right? He defined it for us earlier. Knowing God, knowing Jesus. When he says, I'm going to give you eternal life, he's saying, I'm going to give you me, God's grace, personified. But the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband what you have just said is quite true. And he goes on to tell her that there's this time coming when it won't matter where people are from, when it won't matter where people worship, when it won't matter how many husbands that they've had because the spirit of God is available to all, no matter who you are or what you've done. And you can meet with him anywhere because he goes from being among them to being within them. And after this, the woman says, "I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, he will explain everything to us." Then Jesus declared, "I, the one speaking to you, I am He." And we usually read this story, and we come away with the fact that Jesus announces himself as the Messiah, right? He says, "I am He. I am the savior of the world." That's, it's awesome. It's, it's important. It's true. But if you're a Christian, you already believe that. Right? So the typical reading of this story doesn't really change anything for you. Maybe you use it when somebody says, well, did Jesus ever say that he was really the Messiah? Well, yeah, look, look, he says it to this Samaritan woman in John 4. Let's go back and look at it. But the, the way that it changes your day-to-day life is minimal. You already believe that he's the Messiah. This story doesn't really make much difference in your day-to-day life. But if you approach this story looking for a biblical worldview, meaning you read it knowing that if Jesus is working through us, we will see and serve the world the same way he did, then we understand this story on a much deeper level. The Samaritan woman was on the margins of society. Jews didn't associate with her because she was a Samaritan. Samaritans didn't associate with her because of her promiscuous reputation. She was a loner, coming to the well by herself, taking what was probably a dangerous walk to the well by herself. For the vast majority of her adult life, I imagine the only people who approached her, who came to speak with her, were men who had heard about her reputation and were looking to take advantage of it. We know that her family was broken, five husbands. Even the fifth one didn't work out. Her friendships were probably broken too. There she is, all alone at the well, by herself, getting her water. I imagine her loneliness at the well Was just a microcosm of the loneliness that she experienced day in and day out. Most people would have completely ignored her. Either that, or they would have pointed to her and whispered to their friends, There she is. That's that woman with five husbands. Do you know the guy that she's living with now? It's not even her husband. That's her. Look at her all alone at the well. Nobody even, nobody even wants to talk to her. Would you want to talk to her? I'm not going to go over there and talk to her. Now, let's wait till she's finished before we go to the well. But Jesus doesn't do that. He walks right up and talks to her. Not small talk as he gets some water and, and quickly hurries away, but deep, meaningful conversation. Jesus makes her feel seen. He makes her feel heard. He makes her feel loved, probably for the first time in a really long time. Jesus tells her he knows all about her life, all about the choices she's made, but that he loves her anyway, right where she is. Not because of what she can do for him but because she's an image bearer of God and she is worthy of love. If Jesus is truly leading our lives, y'all, we should be having encounters like this all the time, all the time. This is how Jesus spent his life, reaching out to people whom society had said, you can't be a part." talking to people whom religion had said, you aren't good enough to be here. We should be going out of our way to see and serve people in the margins of our world. We should be spurning societal norms and cultural expectations to make people feel unconditionally loved because that's what Jesus did when he was here on earth, and he wants to keep doing it through me and through you. Start reading scripture with the purpose of knowing and trusting Jesus more. Start studying the Bible, looking for how Jesus saw and served the world around him, knowing that he wants to see and serve the world the same way today through me and you. I'm telling you that it will, it will change the way you read the Bible and it will absolutely change your life. It's done it for me. And I really think it'll do the same for you. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning and for the, the words from your word. God, thank you that studying the Bible is not just this rote exercise that earns your favor, God, but it's this beautiful interaction with you. It's learning to know you better and deeper. It's learning to trust you more and more frequently. God, give us a biblical worldview. Help us see and serve the world the way that you did better than that. See and serve the world through us, God. We are available. We want to be used by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.